Morning, guys. I want to welcome you here. If you are new, my name is Brian, and uh, I'm one of the pastors. We're going to be teaching on the book of Revelation here today. Uh, we have a couple more chapters left in the book of Revelation. We're going to be done. And uh, in fact, we're going to be finishing, finishing on uh, July 4th. That will be the last Sunday. And then after that, we're going to be starting a brand new series uh, that will take us for the next three months to the end of summer, the beginning of the uh, new school year. And then uh, I'll tell you what we're going to be teaching about this summer next week. So you can be trying to figure it out, you know, guessing, whatnot. Uh, it should be a great time. We're really excited about it. What I will tell you this is that uh, what we're going to be going through is we're going to be doing sort of like a tag team. We've got several pastors here on staff and elders, and we're going to be sort of divvying it up as well, which is great. I'm really happy about us being able to do that because I want you guys to know I'm not the only teacher here. There's a lot of great Bible teachers here, and I want you guys to know who they are. This church is not about me, not about, you know, Brian teaching or whatever and all that. And uh, we don't want to be built upon that. So one of the things we are going to be doing over the summer is going to be sharing and divvying up the teaching and all that. You guys will hear a lot of really great, uh, gifted, God-gifted teachers uh, that are part of this body here. So hopefully you guys will be really blessed by that. Um, so what we're going to do right now is we're going to take a look at the book of Revelation. Before you guys jump, I want to say something real fast. Uh, with summer comes radical change. Everything changes for us as a church, really even just as a community in San Luis over the summer. Um, a lot of people are gone, as you obviously know. Uh, San Luis is very much so kind of like a college town. And uh, a lot of people affect kind of the economy and everything else here in San Luis. But also our church, because there are a lot of younger college-age students that are in our church. Um, about 50% of our church shrinks over the summer. Um, which what that means is that we sort of consolidate our services. We typically have three services throughout the uh, year, school year. Um, then over summer, we only have two services. So we'll be having only two services in the morning. That means my work day is cut short, which I'm very happy about, because that means Sunday night I get to go hang out with my family, which is great. And, uh, and then when the fall starts up again, we'll be doing back with three services. So um, my challenge to you guys is this, is to consider ways to get involved in the church over the summer. With things slowing down, um, for some of you, obviously, especially families got kids, uh, your kids are no longer in school, obviously. I don't know, maybe they're in summer school, but, um, but the reality is, is that things sh- uh, shift a little bit and change a little bit. I encourage you to get involved and find ways to get plugged in here. We really try to challenge people to get involved in a community group. And community groups are basically little groups that we have that meet throughout all the uh, Central Coast all the way down in uh, five cities areas, all the way up to North County. And they're just groups of people, believers that meet together. For us as a church, we get together Sunday, weeklies, uh, weekly services, and we have a big gathering, kind of what we do here right now. Worship together, we get to sing songs together, get to hear good teaching together, hopefully. And then what happens is throughout the week, we scatter. We go back throughout, across the Central Coast, as missionaries. And in order for us to be good missionaries, that means to be keep walking strong in the spirit. That means to be able to make sure that uh, we've got people that help us when we fall, when we stumble, or things that we struggle with. We need each other, and that's where community groups come in. Community groups is uh, where you have a support group of people who love Jesus, who pray with you, who help you to get in God's word. They provide good forms of counsel and biblical fellowship and all that. So we encourage you that if you're not currently involved in a community group, get involved in a community group. And if there's not one in your area, then pray about starting one. That means just getting together with a handful of people, maybe that you know if you're a mom, and you just hang out with a bunch of moms that have a lot of young kids, um, start a community group. And that might, for you, look like meeting at a park once a week for an hour, hour and a half, hanging out, 
and in between, you know, fruit snacks and changing diapers and kids scratching their knees, you guys can exchange prayer requests and hang out with each other and know how to pray for each other, start something online, like little, you know, little group, whatever, you guys can be emailing back, back and forth, prayer requests and all that. So it's going to look different for a lot of different people. But the point is, get involved in community, biblical community where you can grow. We all need it. In order for us to be good missionaries, we desperately need the fellowship, the community for us to grow. If you need help with that, uh, Pastor James, one of our pastors here, also is uh, very gifted in the area of helping to kind of get you guys equipped for that. Uh, Contact Pastor James. He'll get you guys dialed in with helping you to equip you, helping you to figure out different things maybe you can teach through whatever. Just there to be a good support for you. So, Uh, Take advantage of that. Our goal is that we just want to see our body continue to be healthy. To me, big fat services on Sunday morning is no sign of health. It's not. To me, what health is, is people who love Jesus, who gather throughout the week, who encourage one another, and keep pouring into each other's lives. That, to me, is real health. Uh, Anybody can get a big, huge gathering together, people on Sunday morning, and, you know, that's kind of unfortunately what we look at in terms of health. I would love to see our church continue to grow in that way. So think about that. Pray about that. That's my nice little uh, pre-sermon warm-up. You're welcome. I'm going to pray, and uh, we're going to get to work today on Revelation chapter 19 is where we're at. We've got, only, like I said, only a few more chapters left before we finish the book. Uh, chapter 19 is where we're going to be setting our targets right now. So I'm going to pray, and then we're going to get to work on this uh, great chapter. Father, we ask you right now that you just help us. We need your strength. We need your insight. We need your input. And God, what we ask, especially for this morning, that you would just help us to not just simply be uh, hearers of your word, and that you would help us to not just simply be people that absorb your word and become sort of spiritually fat, where we just know a bunch of stuff, but we don't live it, where we have certain theological concepts and ideas and ideologies, but in reality, we just don't love each other, we don't serve one another. God, we pray that you would help us to just live in a way in which as your word comes into our hearts and pours into our lives, that it would lead to worship. God, that our theology would lead to doxology and worship and praise and adoration of your name. And and only the spirit of God can do that in our lives. Knowledge puffs up, but love uh, builds up. And God, that's what we ask for, is that your word would lead us and reveal to us the beauty of Jesus, and through that, that we would love not only you, but love one another. So we pray for your help, and we ask all of these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, here's what we're going to do right now. Here, So Revelation chapter 19, if you guys wouldn't mind opening up your Bibles to that right now. And then uh, we're going to jump in. Uh, before we begin, I want to start sort of by prefacing all this by essentially saying what I've been kind of saying over the past few weeks and all along, is that uh, history is going somewhere. Uh, history is not just some sort of arbitrary uh, activity that just sort of goes someplace where we don't really know exactly where it's going, or it's just a series of random events that kind of lead to a lot of suffering, pain, hardship, hurt. Uh, people feel defiled, full of sin. Sin affects not only you as individuals, but sin also affects other people around you. Uh, history is, is not just on a treadmill. It might feel like that sometimes. It might feel as if it's not going anywhere. It might even feel as if it's nothing more than just a bunch of randomness that keeps happening. Uh, History actually is going somewhere. It is directed by God. God, it is his story. God is leading it. God is directing it. He's guiding it. He's in control of it, if you would. And one of the reasons why we say this oftentimes is we even have the very word we use for the Bible, the scripture. You'll find oftentimes in Jesus' life. He'll say things like this. I'm doing this so that the scripture would be fulfilled. 
uh, he's hanging on the cross, and he'll say something to the effect, I say this so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Uh, Jesus' life, his direction, his ministry, the things he did, the things that he taught, really was always in, done in this context or this frame of reference by which the scriptures were being fulfilled. In other words, the word script comes from scripture. It's the same idea. God wrote the script. God's in charge of the script. God is governing it. God's ruling over it. God's working through it. God's always in control of it. So in other words, what I want for us to understand is that history is going somewhere. What we're going to begin to see today, as we sort of make our way towards the end of the book of Revelation, is that history is actually going towards a nice big meal. I mean, I mean you're like, that's, that's it? That's it? Food? For all eternity? No calories? That's really good news. I mean, with Jesus, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, that's what we're going to see today. Is Revelation chapter 19 is we're going to see things are moving towards this series of events that will lead to what's called the marriage supper of the Lamb, where the church, or the bride of Christ, will be married together with Jesus, and there will be a meal. If you want to look at it this way, Revelation chapter 19 actually is all about two major feasts. One feast is a feast that Jesus throws for his bride. There's a big celebration, and they will celebrate and eat good food and enjoy great company with Jesus and his church collectively. The other feast that takes place in the latter part of the chapter is going to be a feast in which Jesus will create it, but it won't be people enjoying good food. It will be birds eating people. In other words, Thanksgiving Day will completely be reversed. Finally, turkeys will win. And they will feast upon all of God's enemies. That's kind of, in a nutshell, what Revelation chapter 19 is all about. So with that being said, I want to basically do this. I want to take a look at two main ideas, main concepts that sort of arise in the text. And we'll look at it kind of this way as two different scenes that transpire, take place in Revelation chapter 19. The first scene is verses 1 through 10, and it deals with this wedding that's taking place in heaven. Verses 1 through 10 is a wedding that takes place in heaven. The second section, verse 11 to 21, is a war that's going to take place on earth. Or traditionally, or typically what's uh, oftentimes known or uh, identified as what's called the uh, Battle of Armageddon. That's what's going to happen. So with that being said, I want to begin by taking a look at this wedding that's going to happen in heaven. So we start off in verse 1 of chapter 19. It says this. And after this I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven, crying, Hallelujah. Salvation, glory, power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her, with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And then it goes on and says, And they cried out, Hallelujah. For the smoke of her goes up forever and ever. The very first thing that we basically see in heaven is there's this big, massive multitude of people these are no doubt Christian saints, people that have been purchased by Jesus' blood uh, in that transaction of Jesus dying on the cross for their sins, bringing them into fellowship by faith. These people have trusted Christ, and by grace they've been saved. They've been brought into this fellowship of Christ, uh, otherwise are known as the body or the bride of Christ. And so what you're going to see here is in heaven, this huge host of people begin to sing. And the very first thing that comes off of their lips is this word, hallelujah. In fact... Uh, in the New Testament, this is actually the only place in which that word hallelujah appears. It appears, I don't know, some 20 or so times in the Old Testament. That's about it. Most of which is in the Psalms. The word hallelujah comes from actually a Hebrew word, hallel, which is uh, to sing or praise. And yah, which is uh, another name for 
God or Jehovah. So when you put the word Hallel and Yah together, Hallelujah, you get this idea of praising God. It's kind of one of those words that oftentimes kind of been adopted in sort of the Christianese circle, right? I mean, all Christians are familiar with this word Hallelujah. Sometimes even a lot of non-Christians are familiar with the word Hallelujah. Sometimes it makes its way into some songs and uh, popular songs going out, and you hear the word Hallelujah periodically. But it happens to me be, in one of my opinion, one of those words that oftentimes gets overused. It's one of those words, kind of like the phrase, I love you. You think about it, you can say the word I love you a lot, and it just sort of loses its shine. It loses its impact, its weightiness. So we can say the word I love you, and it just sort of becomes cheap. I think the word hallelujah can become like that as well. And it's not meant to be that way. I mean, if you stop and you just listen to what the word says, what it's about, it means praise to God, praise to Yahweh, praise to Jah, praise to God. That God is worthy of praise. So one of the things that you'll notice is four times in this chapter, these people will sing hallelujah. It says that they're in verse 1, verse 3, verse 4, later on down about verse 6, that each of these people on these regular occurrences, they sing the song or sing this word hallelujah. They praise God with a loud voice. They're recognizing and acknowledging the fact that God is worthy of praise. So there's two questions that I want to ask as we kind of make our way through this is, first of all, is why do they worship? I think there's some good hints in the text as to why this group of people in heaven worship. The reason why I want to really try to ask this question is because sometimes, again, when we talk about worship, worship, again, is one of those buzzwords in Christianity that can oftentimes lose its weightiness. So we begin to sort of redefine worship as being, you know, nothing more than like this little period of time before a sermon, right? And unfortunately, I think throughout the 80s, one of the worst periods of Christian history, um, where it just became horrible music, and it was sort of like this little warm-up time before the sermon. This is horrible. I mean, worship really should be the bulk of the whole service. It's, it, and I don't mean just simply singing a song or two. I, what I mean is that worship is something we do. Worship is anchored in eternity. Worship is what people do that are redeemed. Worship is what angels do who are created and acknowledge and recognize the greatness and the weightiness of God. That's what worship is. Worship is really the proper response or the proper reaction to God's greatness. That's what worship is. And, and what, one of the things I want for us to think about is when we say the word hallelujah, when we think the word hallelujah, when we sing the word hallelujah, what comes to our minds? My point would be is this, and my challenge to you would be is this. Make certain that your worship, the way that you sing, the way that you talk about God, the way that you think about God, is in proper proportion to God's greatness. It's one of the things you're going to begin to find. In heaven, the way these people sing, the way they worship God, is they worship God really in proportion to the revelation of God. This is really significant to me because one of the things I think oftentimes in the church, we tend to be all like really cool and reserved and mellow. You know what I'm talking about? It's like worship service, people are just like, hallelujah. What? Uh, say it louder. Uh, you know, it's just like, there's not a lot of excitement. I mean, there's not a lot of, like, again, if you just look at it this way, if we worship in proportion to the revelation of God that's been revealed, either A, we're not getting God. We're not getting him. We're not seeing him for who he is. Our hearts really, truly aren't captured, captivated, moved, affected by him. Or we're hypocrites. I, mean, I don't know how else to put it. We, we just really don't feel for God the proper feelings and affections that we should feel for God. Some people are like, should we have feelings? Aren't feelings 
deceptive? Yeah, of course they can be, but the reality is, is we're human beings. We're made to feel things, to have emotions for God and for other people. I mean, think about it this way, all right? Think about a woman on her wedding day. Are you excited to go hang out with your soon-to-be husband? Uh, I feel like I just have to do it. I'm just doing my duty, all right? He asked me six months ago. I said, yes, we spent a lot of money. I got to do it, all right? I mean, that's kind of an insult. Or for a husband, he'd be like, you know, I bought you a bouquet of flowers. And the woman's like, why did you buy these for me? There's no special occasion. He's just like, it's my duty. Husbands need to buy flowers once in a blue moon, all right? And it's a blue moon. I bought them for you. How do you feel? I feel like I want to kick you. That's what I feel like. And the reality is, is that feelings are a natural part of being human because God created us in this way. So my point is that when we think about the weightiness of who God is, does it affect us? Does it move us? Well, in heaven, when we will be redeemed in our fullness and we will see God clearly, we will respond to him with the proper proportion of worship and love and affection and praise, and song, and voice, and all these other things the way that we should. So my challenge to you would be this. Look at yourself right now. How do you worship now? How do you consider God now? How do you sing to God now? What type of proportion is it? Now I realize, obviously, there's no way possibly that we can ever fully match by way of comparison or proportion the revelation that God reveals to us and matching that properly with the proper type of response. We, we just can't. Or we can't sustain it that long because we're human beings, we get tired, and we want to eat. All right? Or because we just don't have that type of emotion or ability to reach that type of thing. But one day in eternity with King Jesus, with new bodies, new minds, new hearts, new eyes, new ears, we will see him for who he is, and we will worship him just like he is meant to be worshipped for as long as he's intended for us to worship him. It's going to be beautiful. So they sing these songs of hallelujah, worshiping the Lord. The first thing that I want you to notice is why do they worship? The first thing we see in verses 1 through 4 is they worship him because uh, sin has been judged. It says this, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just, and he has judged the great prostitute and corrupted the, who has corrupted the whole earth with their immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And then the 24 elders and the four living creatures, they fell down and they worshiped God who was seated upon the throne, saying, Hallelujah! And from him, the throne, and from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you servants, you who fear him, small and great. So the first thing that we notice is that these guys, they praise him because God has finally judged sin in his fullness and he's avenged the saints that have paid dear prices. Some of these saints, meaning they died for their faith. They loved Jesus. They lost their head. They watched their wife get raped. They saw their kids get killed because they loved Jesus. They didn't do anything wrong necessarily in the social structure. They just loved Jesus. So justice cries out and asks the question, when will they be avenged? The answer, right here when it takes place. They recognize, they rejoice in God because sin finally has been dealt with. All right. Now what you need to understand is this. Sometimes because we oftentimes see things and we might not see things fully or completely. So this is where an area sometimes Christians struggle. They're like, well, okay, if Jesus dealt with the sin on the cross, then why is there sin not only resident in my own body, in my own life today, 
but also why is there sin in this world today? It's a big question. It's an important question. And I think the way to answer that, uh, it's helped to sort of delineate what Jesus did on the cross. That sort of bring it round into full completion with what's happening here in chapter 19. When Jesus died for us on the cross, what Jesus did is he dealt with the penalty of sin. You might think about it this way in nice three Ps, all right? Uh, that's, you know, nice, nice alliteration right there for you, you know, people. Anyways, P, first one is penalty. Jesus dealt with the penalty of sin. My penalty, your penalty, the fact that we, our sin has brought an offense to God, the fact that our sin will bring about death, the wages of sin is death. So Jesus dealt with the penalty of sin. He also dealt with the power of sin. So one of the important things that when Jesus left uh, his disciples, he gave them the Holy Spirit. And he said, the Holy Spirit will now reside in you and live in you, in your new creation in Christ Jesus. So now what Jesus has done by breaking the penalty of sin, he's made us new creation in Christ so that the power of sin does not have to control us anymore. You know that a Christian does not need to be controlled by sin anymore? That's an important thing to understand. Because if you're a Christian... And you're still kind of pulling that old car and, you know, in the past, being like, you know, the reason why I'm so angry, the reason why I fly off the handle is because I'm, I'm Irish or, you know, whatever. And the reality is, is that you have not trusted God yet to fully free you from the sin of anger. And God can set you free from sin of anger. Jesus said to the unbelievers, those who sin are slaves to sin. But Jesus also said to his followers, he whom the Son has set free is free indeed. So not only are we free from the penalty of sin, but we're also free from the power of sin. So we don't have to walk under the power of its weight in our lives anymore. Now, Some people move this to a very strong extreme, which I disagree with, of sinless perfectionism. That you can somehow be perfected in this life. You can't. You can't. No matter how hard you try, you're not going to. It's wishful thinking is what it's called. It won't happen. Or extreme optimism, whatever you want to look at it. Um, The point of the matter is... It'll all come down the moment you get married anyhow. All you got to do is ask your spouse. They know the goods on you. All right. The point of the matter is this. So Jesus deals with the penalty and the power. And one day, Jesus will deal with the presence of sin. That's what's happening here in Revelation 19. He's dealing with the presence of sin. Sin as a presence in this world, in our lives, resident around us, as residue around us. We deal with it all the time. We see it all the time. We watch it happen all the time. To be quite frank with you, one of the hardest things for me as a pastor, the things that I deal with most often that drain the most life out of me, that lead me in the most depressive state uh, above me on all of the things, is the fact of having to watch people go through sinful things, go through sinful habits, sin devastate and destroy people's lives, households, and families. It's the hardest thing for me, to be quite, quite frank. To watch what sin does. It's not just always people that like, you know, uh, non-Christians. Sometimes Christians. Christians who make bad choices. Christians that do things that are not necessarily the right particular path that God wants them to walk. They make wrong choices, wrong decisions, and sin destroys and devastates their life. It's hard to watch that. It's the presence of sin around us. So these people, they worship Jesus because one day Jesus is going to completely eradicate it. He's going to remove the presence of sin and it'll be the way God intended for it to be at the beginning. So not only do we see them worship Jesus because uh, sin has been judged. The second thing we also see in verses 5 through 6, uh, because God's reigning. God is reigning. Verses 5 and 6 says this. And then from the throne came this voice saying, Praise our God, all you servants, you who fear him small and great. 
And then I heard what seemed to be a voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of many pearls of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, the Lord God Almighty reigns. This is really important to understand this. Do you know that God reigns? I mean, I understand that this is sort of hard for us to even comprehend in this day in life. Especially when we look around the world, it doesn't take that lot of extra work to try to determine, try to figure out areas where there's radical injustice going on, where people are being oppressed, people groups are being oppressed, whole tribes of people are being deprived of food because some sort of lame despot is taking control and killing people and raping their wives and their children and just exercising all sorts of evil, egotistical uh, atrocities in the name of just mere power might makes right mentality. It's easy for us to look in this world and just wonder, if God's reigning, if God's reigning, how is there so much evil still resident, present in this world? Why doesn't he do something about it? Those are good questions. And the reality that I want to try to emphasize is this, is again, it helps us to understand a little bit about how Christ reigns, the way his reign works in phases. And what's helpful for me, what helped me at least, kind of think about this, was for example... Um, when the, at the end of World War II, the most decisive battle, most decisive victories, anybody know what that is? Anybody? World II buffs? Did anybody like, graduate from school? Oh, I, okay, I think, I mean, now I'm really nervous now, quite frankly, with you. I thought it was this, but I could be wrong. Normandy? Is that right? Who said no? Is that wrong? Is that heresy? What is it? No, no, no. Here's the deal. Here's what I read. All right. Here's what I read. Here's what I read. Normandy was the decisive battle. The moment Normandy happened, the battle was over. It was done. Although there were still a few more weeks and a few more, you know, little skirmishes that needed to take place and unfold, basically at that moment, the moment the Allied forces broke through into the continent there of Europe, it was, it was like over. Give me another example, more to date. The moment America... Uh, gathered together all of their artillery, all of their jets, all of their good, you know, fighting stuff in the Gulf battle, in the Gulf War. Saddam was conquered. They, they hadn't even started firing bullets yet. It's like already done. It was already over, even before it began. Yes, it still needed to play out. Yes, Saddam Hussein still was going to burn down, you know, oil wells and all that type of stuff was going to happen. You guys remember all that? And yes, he still needed to be captured. But basically, the battle was already over. Does that make sense? When Jesus came the first time, died upon the cross, he literally crushed the head of the serpent. The decisive blow was struck. It was over. However, what we see now is the movement or the forward trajectory of Christ's reign going forth into the world, transforming the lives of people like you and I who are Christians, who trust Christ, who are becoming part of that transformative a body of people whom he calls his church, and it's moving forward. There will come a day when all of it will be consummated. There will come a day when Jesus Christ will finish out the rest of the phases, and, it, and we, it's just, I think it's in the book of Habakkuk, as surely as the waters cover the earth, so will the glory of God cover the earth. There's still yet to be this moment when God's universal, cosmic, glorified reign will be fully realized. And when it happens, it'll be phenomenal. Currently, Jesus established the beachhead. That was the cross. And he established people who love Jesus, who are moving forward with the kingdom of God. 
Christians. So hopefully that might help you to look at yourself in a different light. You're not just somebody occupying a chair, doing something on the weekends because you don't have anything better to do except go to church and listen to a guy with a bad haircut yell at you for an hour, but rather if you can look at yourself and say, I'm part of this, this body of Christ, this movement, this kingdom of God that's moving forward, establishing his reign in the world to glorify Christ that will one day ultimately find its fruition when Jesus Christ comes back. I hope that helps you to think about Jesus' rule and reign. Yes, he's ruling and reigning currently right now. Yes, he's established a beachhead through the cross. And yes, one day it will be complete. So that maybe raises the question, then where are we at right now? Well, we're somewhere in between the cross, which started this whole thing, and the soon-to-come return of Jesus Christ, which I hope is sooner rather than later. Right? We don't know when it's going to happen. But one day it will happen. Right now, currently, we are in between those two great events. We get to look forward to that fact that one day Jesus will return. So they worship him, not only because of sin that's been judged, but they also worship him because God's reigning. And then they will also worship him because of the marriage of the Lamb that's come. Verses 7 through 10 says this. It says, And let us rejoice and exult and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready, and has granted for her to clothe herself in fine linen, pure and white. And the linen, fine linen, is the righteous deeds of the saints. So this picture is they worship God because of this moment that they're going to be united together with Christ. They will be made one. What I love about this is basically what John's trying to convey is the intimacy that God wants to have with his church is so intertwined with Christ, the head. It's like a bridegroom marrying a bride. It's like this intimate fellowship, loving relationship whereby Jesus Christ has this fellowship and unity with his church, with his people. It's so intimate, so full of just love. That's the way God wants it to be. And so they rejoice at the fact that now we get to live in this. They get to see this. I've mentioned this before in the past. This is one of the other reasons why I, I, I just, I feel it's so important for us to see not just our church or just a group of churches or a tribe of churches as being the way that we do things is the right way, the correct way, yada, 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 but that we can look at ourselves as a universal body All who call upon the name of Christ. I've said this before. Jesus Christ is not engaged to a harem. He's not going to marry many women. He's not a polygamist. Jesus will marry one bride. One church. One church. That means people that maybe you and I today may feel a little bit uncomfortable with or we may not like certain things they do methodologically, whatever the case is, get past it. Realize there are certain essential things that must unite us. Essential things like the Trinity. Certain essential things like what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross. These are essential things that ought not to be negotiated. But then there's secondary things. Non-essential things that will not carry over in eternity. We won't even be thinking about how the church does their church services. Or do they have drums? Or do they have an organ? Does the pastor wear dockers? Or does he wear jeans? All that stuff is totally not essential. It's secondary and it's ridiculous that people divide over these things. All the while, the world looks back and they're just like, these guys are just always fighting over stupid things. Jesus isn't coming back for wives. He's coming back for one wife, one bride. So these people will, with single voice, united hearts, 
worship him because of the fact that they are finally united together with him as one hope, one faith, one God. The second question I want to ask is this, is uh, how do they worship? The first thing that we notice is that they worship God with their voices. Take a look at this, what this says again. They worship God with their voices. Uh, the word salvation, um, that it's going to basically say in verse 1, it says, And after this I heard what seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying, Hallelujah. Salvation, glory, and power belong to our God for the judgments, his judgments are true and just. They worship God with their voices, meaning they use their voices to sing. And the first thing that they do is they sing out to God for his salvation. They sing. They use their voices. Now again, I I, I, want to just settle this once and for all, just that we can at least think about this. Our voices are intended by God to be used to give him praise, to sing to him. To be devoted to him. The way that we talk about him. The way that we sing about God. All of these things are just sort of, they're, they're meant to be forms or instruments that God gives to us so that we can worship God properly. We use our voices. We sing to God. Now again, I realize, you know, there's a tendency sometimes in lots of churches or, be quite frankly, I love you guys. But I would love it if, you, if we all just sang louder. I mean, I mean, as much as I love you guys, I would love to see people just go crazy sometimes. I mean, show some sort of emotion, all right? Just like, just yell, hallelujah. I mean, every once in a while, someone just tries to do like the little rhythm section. Like someone starts clapping, and like maybe like two other people start clapping. It's okay to have everybody clap. It's absolutely okay, all right? It's totally all right. I mean, the bottom line is this. We know your voices stink. All right, let's just get that on the table. We know you all have bad voices. That's okay. I do too. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how good you sound. It really doesn't matter. Think about it this way. I got two daughters. I love my daughters. I love my daughters. My daughters came up to me, and they painted a picture for me, or they sang a song for me, or they did something for me. I'm not going to be like, that stinks. I've seen way better artists. (laughs) I love what they do for me. I love my kids. I'm almost blind to the way they sing, or left to the way they sing, blind to the way they color, because I just love them. I love what they do in terms of wanting to bless me. I love them. In the same way, the saints throughout eternity. Now, maybe they're going to be given new vocal chords and all that. They're going to sing good. Bono will be leading worship. It'll be phenomenal. The point that I would make is this, is that one day in heaven, we will all sing. So you're like, I don't like to sing right now. Get used to it, because you will. Like, I don't have a loud voice right now. I'm a soft talker. One day, you will talk loud. One day, you will sing loud. Like, I'm kind of quiet by nature. Really? All the time? Yeah, except for football. Well, think about that. I mean, honestly, think about that. It's just like, again, going back to the whole proportionate thing. I mean, we tend to look at God, it's like, ah, God will give him like a hallelujah. You know, and, you know, football can be all excited about it, whatever. My point is this, is that they sing to God with loud voices. Their voices are being used. And one of the things that they worship God for is their salvation. The word salvation, uh, we get the English word like soteriology. It's the idea of the study of the things of salvation. It's the idea of deliverance. God has delivered us. People in heaven, people in the throne room of God, they're going to realize what God has delivered them from. I think part of one of the reasons why a lot of times we don't worship with as much enthusiasm as we should, because I think a lot of times we might not be fully aware of the depth of what we've been rescued from. Jesus said this himself. Right, he's hanging out with a bunch of sinners and lame people and all that. And this lady comes in. She just starts worshiping Jesus at his feet. And they're all freaking out. They're like, is this 
possible? I mean, is it okay for a woman to be, you know, shedding her tears and wiping them up with her own hair on your own feet? Is that like legit? She's like, "Ah, you know what? She loves me. She loves me. To whom? Those who have been forgiven much, they love much. You know what Jesus was saying? She's been delivered from a lot and she knows it. She knows it. So she doesn't really give a rip about whatever other people think. She doesn't really care whether or not it looks legit. She doesn't really care in terms of whether or not people might judge her. She doesn't really care. All she's focused on is Jesus. Honestly, I think if we can just have our worship times where we view God like that. We're here not as a sign or a symbol or in a way of causing other people to look at us. One of the reasons why we turn our lights off. I mean, if we can turn this place into pure darkness, I would. We just don't right now at this moment. Because I don't want us even thinking about other people around us. I want us to just be thinking about Jesus, period. What Jesus has done for us, period. What he saved us from, period. What he saved us for. And so they worship God with their voices, singing to him because of what they have been delivered from. The second thing is this, is they worship Jesus and the Father because of his glory. I've said this before, the word glory, actual Greek is bling. I'm just kidding. Uh, I, I, I think of the word glory is like this, bling, all right? Think of something that just emanates beauty, all right? Think of beauty that just shines, it's flashy, it's blinging. That's glory. God is beautiful, and the emanation of God's beauty is what we call glory. Glory that we just can't even begin to imagine. I think about first century Christians hearing this, because they were surrounded by phrases of glory, predominantly the glory of Rome. The glory of Rome. They always heard it. Glory of Rome. Glory of Caesar. That glory is gone. It's faded away. So in reality, it really wasn't real glory. The glory of God, the Old Testament equivalent to that particular word glory, is the Hebrew word kabod. Kabod. It means weightiness or heaviness. It's this idea of substance. Something about who God is. Something of what God emanates actually has substance. Because God is same. Yesterday, today, and forever. He never changes. That means the weightiness of who he is, the substance of who he is. God is substantial, meaning he has weightiness, power, authority. God does deliver the goods. This preaches in this culture who has just gone through a big bubble burst where everybody thought the system's weighty. It delivers. The housing market delivers. It doesn't. If you're going to make an investment in something that you know doesn't deliver, it's called a fool. The greatest glory that you can devote yourself to, invest your life into, is God. He's glorious. His glory is forever. And it's substantial. It has weightiness to it power to it. That's what he says. And they worship him because of who he is in his glory. The next thing we notice, they worship him because of his power. Uh, the Greek word for that is dunamis. We get the idea of dynamite from, something that's explosive. This is not just simply uh, power, raw power. This is, this, this, is, this is, think of strength, but strength used to do something. That's, that's what this is. It's not just somebody who's really strong, who does nothing about it, very passive. But this is strength that actually does something. Uh, they also worship him because he's just and true. God's judgments are just and true. I want you to think about this. In a culture where justice 
and trueness are not always high on the priority list of everybody else around you. I mean, think about countries in this world today, maybe even our own, where justice is not always happening, where judges can be bought with a bribe, or people can be given over to some sort of seduction, or can be lied to, or maybe they just simply are ignorant. They don't have all of the facts. They don't know all of the dealings. They don't know all that's going on. They don't even know the intention, really, the true intention of why something happened. Why somebody did something, why that person or somebody murdered somebody, or why somebody acted the way they did. They don't really have all of the facts, but at the end of the day, they worship Jesus because they realize Jesus' ways, his judgments are always just, and they're based upon truth. He lacks no information, lacks no wisdom, lacks no knowledge. Everything he does, everything he says is always based upon justice. That's huge. And they worship him because of that. The second thing we notice is not only they worship him with their voices, but they worship him with their bodies. Notice verse 4. It says this. Um, and the 24 elders they, and the four living creatures, they fell down and they worshiped God who was seated upon the throne saying, Amen. They use their bodies. They literally fall down before God and they worship him. Now again, this is where some of the concept that I think we need to honestly, quite frankly, get rid of in the mentality of the American church today. It's like, well, we got to, you know, worship, we got to keep things all clean, you know, where everybody's all nice and decent in order, you know, after all, you know, wearing a nice pair of clothing, I don't want to get dirty. And, you know, I understand, I understand the culture and the context and whatnot where we live, but my point is this. I'm just simply asking the question, is it biblical? I mean, really, is it biblical at the end of the day? I mean, are we really worshiping biblically? Are we really seeking the heart of God? Are we really giving God, worshiping God, singing to God, devoting ourselves to God in a way that is proportionate to the revelation of his weightiness of who he is? That's all I would ask you to think about and to consider. These people got on their faces. They worshiped God. I realize today's culture Sometimes you got pastors that can manipulate people. I don't want to manipulate anybody. I don't want anybody to think I'm telling you anything, I'm suggesting anything to you. I don't. I, I realize that pastors sometimes can very quickly, very easily manipulate what they say and get people to do things. That's not what I want. I don't want that at all. But sometimes also, too, people can do things in a way, sing loud, do things with their body in a way that just sort of draws attention to themselves. And again, the point that I would make is, I'm not talking about that. I'm just simply talking about the person who recognizes the power, the weightiness, the greatness of God. And in response, they raise their hands to God like a child does to their father. They get on their hands and knees like a servant before a great and mighty, awesome, merciful king. They lie on their faces before God as somebody just who recognizes they're in the presence of pure greatness. Talking about the whole idea of worshiping God in proportion to who he is. Not only do we see them worshiping with their voices, their bodies, uh, thirdly, they worship with their mouths. I like this one. Verses 6 through 7 says this, And I heard what seemed to be a voice of many, a uh, great multitude, and the roar of many waters, like the sound of uh, mighty pearls of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, the Lord God um, Almighty reigns. Uh, by the way, obviously, this is where Handel um, takes a lot of his storyline in his oratorio, which he wrote. In verse 7, it says this, and let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. Some of your translations might even say the marriage supper of the Lamb. I think that's a more descriptive picture of what's happening. It, it is a supper. Marriages were really around dinner. Supper. Big supper. And I love this because the way they use their mouths is to eat to the glory of God. They enjoy food in God's presence. 
It's like a big supper. Like I said, and I'll finish with this in just a moment here, but everything is moving forward on this trajectory towards a big, great meal. And it starts here in this sense, in heaven, where God's people, God's beloved saints, will be brought to this supper, and they will enjoy a good meal. They will enjoy a great feast. And there's something about food that's just amazing. I mean, I can think about some of the greatest, most profound moments in my life, and most of them are all around food. Can, can I get an amen, like if that amen. resonates with you? My friend Antonio right here, he's Italian. His whole life is about food, all right? Everything, everything revolves around food. I think that's the way, I, the reason why? I think because it's biblical. He loves Jesus. He loves Jesus. If your life is around food, probably either A, you're a glutton, you worship food, or you worship Jesus correctly, and it just involves food. All right, it's either that. Either you worship it as an idol, or you worship Jesus, and you use food as a way to give God great glory. Some of the greatest moments in my life have been around food. I remember a few years ago, we had this big like office. Uh, we got all of our staff together, some of our elders and leaders and whatnot. We went out for like this Christmas thing. We went to sushi. We sat down in this room. It was amazing. We just sat there. Everybody takes off their shoes. We sit around on the ground. And we, they brought up these things. I think they're called boats. Like two or three or four boats. I don't know how many it was. The humongous proportions of food. It was phenomenal. It was almost like the glory of God descending upon that room. I, I could have sworn I saw a light. It was unbelievable. We ate meat, and we ate more meat, and we ate meat, and it was incredible. You're like, I'm a vegetarian. Trust me, one day when you're fully redeemed and sanctified, you will eat meat. You will like meat. Heaven will be full of meat. Yes, amen. It is about celebrating I mean, the pig is one of the greatest, greatest creations of God. You feed it grass, and you get bacon. It's amazing. I didn't make that one up. All right, the point of the matter is this, is that God created food for a purpose of celebration. And when people first century had meals together and ate, there's something very intimate and special that happened. History is moving forward to this moment where we're going to eat together. I think one of the greatest parts about that probably, I don't know this for certain because I haven't read the chapter verse about this yet, but I have a hunch it's probably all fat free. There's no calories. It will be all glorious. All right? So what happens here is they worship Jesus because of this just unbelievable celebration. They worship him with their mouths, using their mouths. You know what? I know what Paul's equivalent to this in the modern day era. This is one of the reasons why Paul says, Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God in food or drink. Whatever you eat, whatever you drink, do to the glory of God. Don't do the way the pagans do, where they make it their God. But you as Christians, you're free because God is God, and he created it all for you to celebrate and enjoy him. I've said this many times before. Chips and salsa and guacamole is one of God's most divinely great gifts from heaven. When you sink your teeth into really good guacamole, it's like a spiritual experience. That's the way it should be. Worshiping God, enjoying his greatness forevermore. Eternity, heaven, will be like a big meal. Celebrating God. Eating with some of the greatest amazing people. Sitting down. Sitting down with Peter. Sitting down with guys like Jonathan Edwards. I'm very excited about that one. I want to sit right next to him. I'm really pumped to meet him. 
a lot of amazing saints who just love Jesus to get to hear their stories about what God had done in their lives, in their context, in their culture, in their lives, the miracles they experienced. And the greatest storyteller of all is going to be Jesus. He's at the head of the table. And we get to hear him tell the most profound stories of the mysteries of the universe, of his creative design, his beauty, his greatness, his glory. And we will worship him. That's what it's all about. I want to finish with this. As we move on to the very last section is this. Verse 11, we see now that there's this war that takes place on earth. We see the wedding that take, takes place in heaven. We now see this war that shifts to begin to take place on earth. One of the things I want to say before I jump into this is very quickly just make a distinction. Uh, there is a distinction between Jesus' first coming and Jesus' second coming. Jesus' first coming, here's a few of the items that I've kind of written down for you. I'm not going to read all of them. You can look at a couple of them. Uh, let me read first in verses uh, 11 down to about verse uh, 16. It says this, And when I saw heaven open. Behold, there was a white horse, and one sitting on it was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes wars. His eyes are like the flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, pure in white, were, flow, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh is a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I've said this many times before. If the picture that you have in your mind is a, a very weak, uh, mellow, itinerant preacher from the first century... And that's what you think about when you think about Jesus. You need to upgrade your picture of Christ. That's not him. That was him. That's not him now. Today, Jesus is the way he's described in the book of Revelation chapter 1. He's powerful. He's almighty. He's had an upgrade. And one day, Jesus will come back in all authority and all power. His first coming, as some of these will point out, we see he came riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. His second coming, he's going to be riding a white horse. You say, is there a difference? Yes. It's like the difference between a moped and a limousine. First coming, Jesus rode a moped into town. Second coming, Jesus has his absolutely gorgeous, beautiful white steed, which symbolizes power and strength and might and authority. We also notice that the first time he came, his eyes were like filled with tears. We see him crying over Jerusalem. Second time, he says that his eyes of the flame of fire. First time he was crowned in thorns. Second time, crowned with many diadems. First time he was stripped of his clothes and he was drenched in his own blood. The second time he's clothed in a white robe dipped in their blood. First time he was abandoned by his followers. Second time he will be followed by those who abandoned him but now redeemed. The first time he came and he was crushed by his enemies. The second time he will come to crush his enemies. The first time Jesus came and he bore the cross, second time Jesus will come bearing a rod of iron. This is different than the first time. First time Jesus came to bring salvation, to help, to bring grace. This is one of the reasons why when people ask him, what are you doing here? Jesus says, I did not come to judge you now. I've come to set you free. It's what I've come to set you free, to help you, 
to bring salvation, to save you. The second time Jesus will come will be to judge. You need to understand this. Because some of you may be living yourself in a life where you just think Jesus, the same Jesus that came, will continue to be that same Jesus throughout all eternity. That's not true. There will come a time where Jesus' wick will end up becoming explosive. The reason why Jesus has not come back yet, the reason why Jesus has not brought his judgment yet, is because what 1 Peter tells us is he's patient. He's long-suffering. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to everlasting life. Think about it. If Jesus came two years ago, some of you would be in hell. But in goodness, kindness, mercy, and grace, he's continued to prolong it. But that won't go on forever. You have to understand this. this is exa- I'm, I'm not making this up. This is not doctrine according to Brian. This is exactly, I'm just reading what the text says, that Jesus one day will come back, and he won't come back in the same manner in which he came the first time. He will come back, he's angry, he's ticked, and he will judge sin, and he will judge those who follow sin, and he describes it as a harlot. You need to understand, John is juxtaposing two concepts. Jesus has a bride, Satan has a harlot. Satan has a whore. That's the picture. Jesus has a bride who he loves, who he's willing to lay his life down and restore and buy and purchase and clothe. Satan has a whore that he strips her clothes off, does anything he wants to do to her, he rapes her, and leaves her defiled. And Jesus says, unless you change, you will pay the same fate as Satan. That's where this whole text is going. Listen to how it finishes. I want to jump to this last thing. It says here in verse 17, and then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds, and fly directly overhead. Come gather for the great supper of God. So again, another juxtaposition. First supper was a meal that God prepares for his bride, whom he loves. The second supper is a meal that God prepares people for the birds. It says to eat the flesh of the kings, flesh of the captains, flesh of the mighty men, flesh of the horses, the riders, flesh of all the men, both free, slave, both small and great. And I saw a beast and the kings of the earth And they were there gathered together with their armies to make war against him who was sitting upon the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet. And in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who had worshipped the image. These two were thrown alive in the lake of fire which burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of Jesus. Some of us think of Jesus as this gentle guy who carries around lambs. You need to see Jesus, as Revelation points him out, as that one day he will come back and Jesus himself will destroy and murder, wipe out those who have put themselves in pure rebellion against him. Verse 21, and he says, And the rest were slain by the sword, and they came by the mouth of him who was sitting upon the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. This is what will one day happen. I want to finish with this thought and leave you with this. Next slide is, uh, again, another diagram for you guys. A lot of ways in which you can sort of describe the Bible. You can break it down in lots of different ways. Some people do it by covenant. Some people do it by dispensation. Some people do it by chapter, verse. However, there's lots of different methodical ways in which you can do this. One of the ways I think that's really beautiful by which to understand the gospel is through meals, through food. It's kind of interesting. 
Uh, some of you are like, I've never heard it this way. Well, just listen to it this way. First of all, in the garden, when God originally created Adam and Eve, the very first thing he does in this garden of perfection, it's called paradise, God creates a garden, a tree of life, places it there right in the center of the garden. He says, you guys eat of it. Eat of it and you will live. It's like we will have a meal together. You will eat with me. I will be with you. It will be phenomenal. It will be paradise and heaven. But we know what ends up happening is rather than eating with God, they choose to eat of this secondary tree, which God forbids them. It's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They end up literally having a meal with Satan. I want you to think about this. When we sin, our sin, our rebellion, our rebellious deeds, our proclivities towards evil and wickedness and sinfulness, you have to understand this. It is as if when we indulge or engage in these things, it's like eating a meal with Satan. It's the picture. If you can get that picture in your mind, when we sin, it's like partaking a meal, sitting down to a table, eating a meal with Satan. But little do we know, as I've mentioned this before in the past, Satan always baits or puts a hook within the bait. Always. So that Jesus even said it this way, those who sin become slaves to sin. This is why sin is so dangerous, why sin is so damning. This is why sin leads to death and destruction. It's one of the reasons why Jesus says, don't sin. He doesn't say that because he's a bad God. He wants to ruin our lives. He says it actually because he loves us and he wants to save us. He wants to free us. He knows the habitual types of things that sin can bring about in our lives. The destructive behavior, the dehumanizing behavior that it brings about, sin brings about. So Adam and Eve partake of this meal with Satan and they fall. They sin. Years later, God establishes another meal. It's called the Passover meal. Jews to this very day still celebrate it. It was basically a meal that depicted this idea. They would eat this Passover lamb. New Testament, uh, New Testament writers describe to us that Jesus is our Passover lamb. So everybody who partook of this Passover meal with God were saved. Were redeemed. They were saved. They were brought out of, delivered from Egypt. The next one we see Jesus on his earthly ministry, just before he started his earthly ministry. One of the very first things Jesus does is he goes out into the wilderness for 40 days or 40 nights and he fasts. No food sustains himself from any type of eating or engaging in any type of meal. At the end of this fast, Satan comes to him just like he came to Adam and Eve and says, you want to have a meal together? Just, I'll, just tell me, tell me, and I will take these stones and I will turn them into bread for you right now. You can do it yourself. I'm telling you to do it. And we can eat together. Jesus denies Satan a meal. I will not do anything you tell me to do. Fast forward. Jesus' ministry regularly surrounding food. The very first miracle Jesus does involves food. It's a way of saying he's the Lord of food. He's the Lord of celebration. It's really what he desires. He desires to fellowship with image bearers who love him, who recognize him, who trust him, who honor him. And regularly, Jesus was chided for this. People made fun of Jesus. They gossiped about him. They said, Jesus is a drunkard. Dude's always getting drunk, which he didn't. That was just an accusation. Jesus never got drunk. Probably drank wine, but never got drunk. Dude's always eating. He's just a glutton. I Meaning he's always just eating food. Every time we see him, he's eating food. He's always eating food with whores and sinners and tax collectors. People that we religious people just don't particularly like. Because they don't pray the way that we do. They don't sing songs the way that we do. They don't have church the way that we do. So we hate them. Jesus says, I came to love them. I came to have a meal with them. And I came to invite them to dine with me. Fast forward. Just before Jesus 
is about to be crucified. He knows the events that are about to happen and transpire. Jesus literally turns to his disciples and he says, I must eat this last meal with you guys. It's the most important thing on his mind at that moment. Food. I gotta eat with you guys. I gotta set this precedent that we're gonna sit down, we're gonna have a meal together. We're gonna enjoy this meal together because this meal is gonna set the precedent for years to come, for the next few 2,000 plus, however many years, till the day I come back again, this will set the precedent. He sits down and has a meal with his disciples. Right after that, move forward. Jesus rises again from the dead. Very first thing he does, he goes back to the Sea of Galilee, hangs out with his friend. Very first things he does is he takes fish. He says, have a barbecue. Let's eat. Let's enjoy a meal with each other. I'm alive. I've risen. I've conquered the grave. Let's eat. This is awesome. Let's eat. And then finally, we come to Revelation chapter 19. Jesus sits down and has a meal with his bride. And then finally, Jesus has this meal whereby he prepares people, flesh, their blood, their body for the birds of the air. There's a final meal. They will be feasted upon. And interestingly enough, in the very last chapter of Revelation chapter 22, it's very interesting to me to notice that what ends up happening at the very last chapter is exactly what happened in the very first chapter of the book, the Bible. God brings the tree of life back. And he basically says, the tree, it's for my blood-bought saints to eat with me, to fellowship with me, to live, to partake, to indulge upon me, I and the tree that will give them life. I will give them life. The gospel, there you have it, through food. The real question I just need to ask you guys with and think about, is where are you at? What place do you find yourself today? Are you part of the bride of Christ have you trusted Jesus? Or are you part of the whore? Have you just given yourself out regularly? There is a distinction between a bride and a whore. The bride will only keep herself exclusively for her love because she loves him, because he loves her. The whore, she gives herself to whoever. Whoever has the biggest price or offers the best price, whoever gives something that's going to be pleasing or satisfying to her in that moment. Where are you at? You know the beauty of this is? Is the bride was all once former whores. It's what Paul was talking about, Ephesians chapter 2. He says, you, all of you, used to once walk according to the course of this world, according to the disobedience that was in your heart. You guys, by nature, are children of wrath, just like everybody else. But God, in grace, and mercy, and kindness, and in love, changed you. Gave you a heart to love him. He took away your defilement and put on white robes. If you're a Christian here, I hope you see yourself as purified and as of Christ. You're a virgin. You went from being a whore to being a virgin. Beloved by Christ. We have an amazing God. We're going to worship. Nick's going to come on up. We're going to finish in some songs of worship. One of the things that we do often weekly here, as we celebrate communion. I want to say this about the communion. Communion is that meal that Jesus had the night before he was betrayed. He says, each time you guys eat of this, remember me. Keep doing this until the day I come again. Communion reminds us the fact that Jesus himself came to invite me to have a meal with him. You know that? The pathway to that was to cleanse me, to wash me. His path, his ticket, his entrance ticket 
that he gave to me freely was one that he had to pay the price for. He willingly subjected himself to death, the cross, for myself, for me, for you. This is one of the reasons why Paul says, when you partake of the communion, don't do so unworthily. That means if you're living in sin today, if you're unrepentant of sin in your life, you're living like a whore, don't eat a meal that's for a bride. Honestly, don't eat a meal that's for a bride. But if you're here this morning and you feel that you're a whore, you feel as if you sinned, you feel as if you just pawned yourself off and you're defiled and you're sick of that, and God's opened your eyes and he's put an urge in your heart to cry out to him, I urge you, I encourage you, call upon him, ask Jesus to wash you and cleanse you, and then partake of the communion. Eat it, indulge it, enjoy it. Remember, you're sitting down to have a meal with King Jesus who loves you. I encourage you men to partake of the communion with your spouses. If you're here and you're married, you've got kids, go pick your kids up and bring them in here. Eat the communion together. Be, a fam- be, be the man of the household that's gonna lead the family. You're like, I got in a fight with my wife. We're not doing so hot. Well, that's one of the beautiful things about communion is it leads you to repentance. You, you've, got to, you've got to confess sin when you come to the table of Jesus. You've got to. You can't be harboring or holding on to sin. You just can't. You've got to confess it. You've got to let go of it. If you're religious, you're trusting in your religiosity and your spiritual you know, fervor and your abilities, and that's made you prideful and arrogant, you can't come to the table with that. It's just inconsistent to the meal that Jesus says, I prepared for you what you eat is my body given to you. We're going to respond by worshiping, partaking the communion. We're going to respond by giving our tithes and our offerings. We're going to respond by singing, singing songs of praise. We're going to respond with our bodies, using our bodies as acts or as instruments of worship and praise. So I'm going to pray. We'll give. We'll sing. We'll partake of communion. We'll confess our sin to Christ. Maybe even confess our sin to each other. Ask God to forgive us and wash us. And we'll move forward victoriously as a church the way God wants us to be. I encourage you, parents, maybe go pick up your kids and bring them in here. I'm gonna pray. Let's do this. Jesus, thank you for the cross. Thank you for what you did for us. God, right now we remember you by partaking of your cup, your bread, the meal that you gave to us to remember you by. God, we wanna sing to you. We wanna let our voices be an instrument that we use no matter how bad they sound. We just thank you, Jesus, that you love us. You always love expressions of worship, of love, and of adoration, and affection from your children to you. So right now, Father, we, we come to you as imperfect beings. We're well aware of our imperfections, but we love the fact that, God, in your eyes, in your eyes, you see us as pure, spotless, without blemish.